0: Welcome to the podcast, Let the Prophet Speak. Today we are going to study together the book of Esther, that's Megillah Esther, Gimel, Chapter 3. We just completed, in Chapter 2, we, we read about several important factors. One was the choosing of Queen Esther to become the new queen, to replace Vashti. She is now in place as the queen. We learned that although she was the queen... She did not reveal her peoplehood, where she came from. She did not reveal the fact that she was Jewish. We also learned of the fact that her cousin, Mordechai, who had adopted her as a child to take care of her because she was orphaned, was constantly checking on her well-being and on her welfare. And then we finished the chapter two with the episode of how Mordechai while being uh, while being in the king's court heard of a plot to assassinate the king he revealed this to Esther it was revealed to be true and Mordechai proved his loyalty to the king to the king Ahasuerus and the two um, conspirators Bigtan and Teresh were hung because uh, Mordechai had revealed the plot this is, uh, this is what we have in place as we begin chapter 3. So let's begin chapter 3. After these things occurred. And this is immediately after the uh, event where Mordechai revealed the conspiracy. So after this, Gidal Hamalach HaChashverosh, the king HaChashverosh promoted, or raised into glory. at Haman ben another member of the court of the king by the name of Haman, Ben Hamadata Ho'agogi, the Agagite. It is important to point out that Agag is a name we're familiar with from previous times in the Bible. Agag was the king of the Amalekites, whom King Saul was, um, in the Book of Samuel. King Saul was tasked to uh, fight the Amalekites and destroy them because they were the enemies of the people of Israel. And Agag was the king at the time that Saul neglected to execute, even though he was the main uh, the main guy he was meant to attack. He was the king of the enemy. Um, and for that, King Saul lost his kingship. The fact that the uh, verse here points out that Haman was a descendant of Agag is an important point. The rabbis discussed this significantly, but especially important when we remind ourselves that in the last chapter we just learned that Mordechai was descendant of a man named Kish, and Kish was the name of King Saul's father. So it can't be coincidental that in these two chapters we point out that Mordechai was a descendant of the same family that King Saul was from, and that Haman was a descendant of the same family that Agag was from. So these two enemies are being portrayed as enemies that um, represent Israel and its enemies throughout the generations. Uh the, the verse is clear it's not clearly not coincidental that these two points are being pointed out here. Now I just want to point out also that it's very curious here. me'ela means after these things occurred, meaning after Mordechai exposed the plot, the king elevated Haman. Why did the king elevate Haman? Shouldn't the king have elevated Mordechai? One would imagine that Mordechai was the one who just revealed the plot. But apparently Haman took advantage, the the, verse is deliberately stating here and putting it out in such a way that we should understand that Haman took advantage of the king's feeling of vulnerability, presented himself as a loyal servant of the king that would be faithful to the king and therefore the king should elevate him. Somehow Haman managed to maneuver that, but Mordecai did not take advantage of his what should have been uh, found favor with the king to elevate himself. Mordechai remained loyal to the king, whereas Haman used it as an opportunity to advance himself, which is quite consistent with Haman's personality, as we shall see. So And the king raised him high above all of his other officers. And he placed his seat, or his position, so that he was the most elevated of all of the officers of the court over and above all of the other officers of the king's court. And all of the servants of the king, Asher that, that also uh, were uh, present in the courtyard of the king, all of the royal officials that uh, were uh, elevated enough to be present in the king's courtyard, they went and they kneeled and bowed their faces to Haman in deference. Because this is what the king had commanded him. I'm going to talk a little bit more about those words in a second. But Mordechai, let me finish the verse. Mordechai, Mordechai would not kneel and would not bow down. We're going to see it very soon that there were a lot of consequences to the fact that Mordechai did not bow down. Because Haman became infuriated, as we'll see shortly. And, and this led to the decree of genocide against the Jews. So the question here is, of course, why Mordechai did not bow down, and let me—I want to address that for a moment. The most common understanding is is that Mordechai did not bow down because he was religiously prescribed from doing so, because Haman must have been making himself into some sort of a deity, and Mordechai refused to bow and show deference to a deity other than God. Uh, there are other understandings of this. Uh, Basically, using the line of thought that I sort of introduced in the last verse, uh, that Mordechai was doing it out of principle because Haman represented the enemies of the Jews and Mordechai was a Jew. That's another way of understanding this. But both of these leave us wanting for an explanation. We find throughout the Bible, we find numerous, countless times, where one person would bow in front of another in deference to show respect, both in terms of royalty and sometimes otherwise. We find it repeatedly from the first and find it in Genesis when Jacob bowed to Esau. We find it where Joseph's brothers bowed to Joseph. We find it, I mean, repeatedly over and over again. If we look from the beginning of the Torah on, we find it repeatedly. There is no religious prescription against bowing to an official of the king to show deference. So it just simply, it almost, it defies reason to assume that that's the reason why Mordecai did not bow. And so the, the, I kind of got this idea from some of the words of the Malbim in his explanation, but, um, but the Malbim doesn't really uh, say this. But after analyzing these words, I think it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on here, and it's something very, very different from what we find in the standard commentaries. And let me explain. First of all, this event occurred right after Mordechai demonstrated his loyalty to the king in the case of Bigtan Voteresh. This shows us, the verses are trying to show us that Mordechai was a dedicated servant of the king. When the king's uh, uh, other servants, after Haman was raised to his high position, started to bow to him, it says it in very clear words here, ki because that is what the king commanded him. Many of the... uh, Of the um, commentaries or translations have a difficulty with this because they say, What do you mean that's what the king commanded him? The king commanded who? The king commanded the people of the court to bow to Haman. It should have said, Because that's what the king commanded them. So they go ahead and they translate, say, Well, that it must mean really to say that that's what they commanded regarding him or about him. That's what they, but that's not what it says. It says that's what the king commanded him. I think that those words are extremely deliberate, because only Haman was the source of this supposed decree that the king made. Haman said that the king told him that everyone was supposed to bow to him, and therefore everyone went ahead and listened to him and bowed. But Mordechai wasn't about to buy it. How do we know the king never made such a decree? If there was a decree, it would be posted, and it would be sent like all of the other decrees that the king makes there is no independent verification of this decree other than that Haman claimed that such a decree was made so the reason why Mordechai did not bow was not because he didn't there was there's something wrong with bowing but the reason why Mordechai was tachavet is because kichein Ki because this command was delivered to Haman alone because Haman because it was bogus it was baloney Mordechai did not bow because he was loyal to the king, just as we just saw in the story of Bigtanla Vasares, that Mordechai was demonstrating his loyalty to the king by not bowing to Haman. So then, of course, the courtiers in verse three turned to Mordechai and asked him, "By Yom de Hamelach, the servants of the king, then Asher Bishah that all were with the, in the king's courtyard." So these are the high-level courtiers. They said to Mordechai, and they asked him, Why are you transgressing the command of the king? They are saying this because the easy thing to do, of course, is to bow to Haman. Haman says the king said it, so what could possibly be bad? And Haman is the, the highest and most powerful guy next to the king, so bow to him. Why are you not doing it? Curiously, Mordechai does not immediately answer them. But he does answer them, and we'll see in a moment what his answer is. In verse 4, They constantly badgered him with questions. Actually, it doesn't say they constantly badgered him with questions. It says, They said to him, bow, 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 do what everyone else is doing. But he did not listen to them. So And the people went, and they told Haman, Look, there's one guy who's not bowing to you. Maybe you didn't notice. Lirot, and they did this because they wanted to see ya'amdu Mordechai, if the words of Mordechai would stand. Now what does that mean if the words of Mordechai would stand? That means that he was answering them. The verse just didn't say what his answer was yet. But he repeatedly did answer them. And what was his answer? Ki higid lahem yehudi, because he told them, I am a Jew. This is the reason why I'm not bowing. Now, the traditional commentaries assume I'm a Jew and therefore my religion prescribes me from doing this. But I'm going to suggest the way I'm explaining it now and what seems to me to be much more obvious from the words is that what Mordecai was telling them was something much, much different than that when he answered that I am a Jew. If you recall in these last two chapters, we mentioned many, many times about how there were 127 different provinces. Each one had a leader, who was invited to the king's party. Each one had its own language. Each one had its own alphabet. Each one had its own culture, religion, and customs. But the Yehudi, the Jew, we just said in the last chapter, was exiled. And who is he exiled with? We said in the last chapter, and we emphasize this, he was exiled with Yechania, the king Yechania, who was exiled to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. As we know, later on, the Babylonian kingdom was overtaken by the Persian kingdom, so they are now Persian subjects. Now, if we go back to Jeremiah 29, after Yechania was exiled, let's go back to the history here, and let's see what it means to be a Jew exiled with Yechania as our Book of Esther pointed out that Mordechai was a part of that, or his family, at least, is were part of that group. So in Jeremiah 29 sends a letter to the people exiled as follows. I'm going to read it to you. These are, this is the words of the scroll. That the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to all of those that were exiled, all of the priests and the prophets and all of the nation that were exiled by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem towards Babylon. After the King Jehoiachin was exiled with them. Remember, Mordechai's ancestors were with this group, and the queen and all of his all of his servants, all of the officers of Judah and Jerusalem that were, and all of the artisans, and so on that were sent with them. And what was the letter that he sent? I'm going to skip verse three, to verse four in Jeremiah 29. out so says the Lord God all the God of Israel, lochol to all of the exiles of Share that I have exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. you should build homes, and reside there, ganos, plant your gardens, and you will eat the fruits from your gardens. Marry women, Banim and have children. Sons and daughters, and marry off your children, and have your daughters marry men. And have grandchildren of Rabushamba Settle there. Settle in Babylon. And here's the key verse. Vidir et Shalom Hair. This is verse 7, Jeremiah 29. Addressed to two Mordechai's people. Vidir et Shalom Ha'ir, I want you to seek always the peace of the city and the government of the city. Asher at et that I am exiling you to there. I want you to pray for the peace of the city. to God, Because when the city and its government and its leadership has peace, that is when you will have peace. And then it goes on over there, but that's the crux of what I wanted to quote. So Mordechai told them, I am a Jew. I don't have one of the, all of you, everyone else here, Either you're Persians yourselves, or you're Medians, or you're a member of any one of the many nations that make up this empire. But each of you has your own place, has your own language, has your own uh, customs, has your own religion. And you don't, it's not as important to you the stability of, of the government as who's in charge and who's not in charge. You have a place to retreat to. I don't. I'm an exile. Asheru Yehudi, I am a Jew. I am scattered, and will in this land. I live in this land, at the behest of the government of this land. I must and I will remain loyal to my king. This is, and the irony of this, or the um, I'm not sure if irony is the right word, but the the we will see as this chapter goes on is that this very weakness of Mordecai as a Jew and as being a member of the Jewish people is the very weakness that Haman is about to exploit. The fact that they were scattered in exile in this new nation but Mordechai was steadfast in following the instructions given to his ancestors by Jeremiah to remain loyal to his king. This, so the, when it says over here Vagidu Haman, that the courtiers went and they told to Haman that he was a Jew to see if Mordechai's words would stand they wanted to see, is this true? Is this true that Mordecai is being loyal to the king and the king really never made such a decree about bow to Haman? Is Haman the one who is going to win and be the powerful king and eventually usurp the king? Or will the king win and will Haman's downfall eventually come? And as when we see at the end of the book, when Haman's downfall does come, because the king does realize that Haman is in it for himself and not for the good of the king, all of these courtiers all of a sudden flip their allegiances to Mordecai but they are just fair weather friends. So Vayar Haman, this first five, then Haman saw ki ein Mordechai korea He saw that Mordechai did not bow, and did not kneel before him. chema, and this filled Haman with rage. Vayi but it was bad in his eyes. It was, it was weak in his eyes, or it was difficult in his eyes, to buy himself single-handedly go ahead and attack Mordecai. Now this could also be interpreted to just take something out against Mordecai. But rather he wanted to go against Mordecai. They told him the, member, the nation that Mordecai was a part of. He didn't like this entire idea that the Jewish people were loyal to the king. He wanted them to be loyal to him. I'm just continuing with my explanation based on the verses that we're reading. Haman, and therefore Haman wanted him to destroy all of the Jews because destroying Mordechai alone wouldn't help if Mordechai went, there would be another Jew in his place and another Jew in his place, all of whom would remain loyal to the king, which would which would ruin haman's own plans. he wanted to destroy the nation of Mordechai, the entire nation that resided within the entire kingdom of Achashverosh. so In the first month of the year, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of the reign of King Ahasverosh, he peeled poor. He threw some lots. He, He threw some dice to figure out when would be the right time to destroy the Jews. Remember, we learned in the first chapter how the Ahashverosh turned to the Yodei Ha'itim, those people in his religion that knew the times, that knew how to divine, which time was the auspicious time to do certain things. So the same thing, Haman here, used these dice to determine what would be the best time to destroy the Jews. This is the lottery that Haman did, to determine which day, and to determine which month. He determined that it should be the 12th month. Chodesh Nehemasar, Chodesh Adar, which is the month of Adar. So, how is Haman going to carry out this plan? Of course, he's going to use his closeness with the king in order to carry out his plan to destroy Israel and then eventually usurp the throne. In case you doubt my assertion that Haman's intention was to usurp the throne, let us look, remember what happened when. Uh, a couple chapters later when the king asked Haman what do I do with someone who I want to honor that I want to give honor to the first thing Haman jumps to his mind was put him in the in the king's robe put him in the give him the king's crown and the king's horses and the king's chariot and have him march through the streets what kind of person would say such a thing other than a person who wants to be king himself and what kind of a person would make up a decree that everyone has to bow to him other than a person who wants to be the king himself And in order to do that, he needs to destroy the Jews because the Jews are loyal. So in a classic move, Haman goes to the king. And in order to destroy them, he has to present these people as the opposite of what they are, which is, and say that they are disloyal. And he's going to use their weakness against them. The very fact that they don't have their own um, land, their own Medina, the very fact that they're scattered among the other nations, he's going to say proves that they are disloyal. Yes there is this nation that is scattered amongst all of your other nations. This nation doesn't have its own place. it's just scattered around. They don't they don't give you any strength. they don't give you a, a new place. like if you rule over the the, the nation of, of Hodu of India, for example, you have that land, you have that territory. By ruling over them you gain nothing. They are scattered among all of the provinces of your kingdom. And worse than that, they have their own laws. They have their own rules. They do their own thing. They have their own religion. And they don't do the rules of the king. Now remember, if it truly was a decree of the king that they had to bow down to Haman, he would, Haman would clearly state the example. They don't listen to the king's decree and bow down to me. But Haman does not say that. He says, they just don't keep the king's rules. He didn't have any examples to give because it wasn't the king's decree to bow down to Haman, which is what we are asserting. and Therefore, it isn't even worthwhile for the king to leave them. Don't bother keeping them in your nation. They're no, of no use to you. In fact, I'll tell you how I'll make use of them. Himal told the first nine, if it's okay in the eyes of the king, you can save la'abdam. You let him write a a decree that they should be destroyed and I will donate 10,000 silver pieces I will deposit it uh, in order that the king should have enough money to pay those that carry out the executions and the genocide of the Jewish people I'll put it in the coffers so there will be no expense to the king and the king of course understood right away that there was significant profit involved so therefore, verse 10, The king, completely taken in by Haman's arguments, took off his ring from his hand, his signet, his ring, which was used as a seal on the king's edicts, and he gave it to Haman. And here it says his entire title, Haman, the son of Amdasa, the descendant of Agag, who has always been the enemy of the Jewish people. Agag, that Zorer could be going on the one, the enemy of the Jewish people could be going on Haman or on his ancestor Agag, all the way back in history. This is the archetype of the enemy of the Jewish people, the one who takes the very strength and characteristics of the Jewish people and tries to use it against them and turns it into. And this is one of the first in recorded history anti-Semitic canards. Verse eleven: The king said, to "You have all the money you need. I don't even need your donation. in the nation, you could do however you like." Verse twelve: And the uh, the scribes of the king were called in during that first month on the thirteenth day. This is the day before Pesach It would have fallen out when this decree was written. Uh, And they wrote down everything that Haman commanded them to write To all of the king's governors and all of the heads of all of the various uh, uh, provinces the al-sarei am and the heads of each and every nation that resided within the Persian kingdom, Medina, Medina K'chsova, to each nation by, with its own alphabet, the am Kiloshono and each nation in its own language, in the name of the king of the who the decree was written and was sealed with the, the signet of the king, which had been given to Haman to use. The Nishlah Sifarin verse thirteen and these scrolls were then sent out by Aratsim by the runners, Al Kalamidino Samalakh to all of the provinces of the king Lashmid Ashmid, La Arogu, to destroy, to slaughter, and to eradicate Eskul Hayyudim, all of the Jews, minar Zakin, from young to old, tafanashim children and women, beyomechad, on one particular day, which was going to be Mishlosha's or Al Kodesh on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar Ushlalam Lavoz, and all of their property would be open and free for anyone to take and plunder. At HaKsav, the text of the document, Das B'chol was written to become law, incorporated as law in each and every province, Galoy L'chol Ha'amim, it should be revealed and announced publicly to all of the nations so that they should be prepared to carry out this genocide of the Jewish people on that particular day. The runners went um, uh, rushed by the word of the king. The king said, "Rush and give this decree. It's important. I want you to make sure that it gets to everyone on time. And of course, the law was announced in the capital Shushan. And of course, as is what often happens with tyrants after they issue in such a horrific edict via they sat down to drink and enjoy themselves Shushan but the city of Shushan was stunned was Navocha was, was stunned in an awful way by this terrible news. I want to state that um my understanding of the first part of this chapter three, which understands this that the decree to bow to Haman was something that the king did not actually say, but rather this was something that the um, Haman claimed and that the reason why Mordechai did not bow was because of his loyalty. After uh, writing this down and, and coming up with this idea, which I said I got from some of the ideas expressed in the Malbim, but the Malbim doesn't carry these ideas all the way through the way I stated them. I did. Uh, it was brought to my attention that uh, Rabbi David Foreman, on his uh, uh, in his podcasts called Aleph Beta, also had a very similar approach, um, and he fleshes out this idea as well. So um, I was gratified to hear that uh, this idea was not just my own, uh, and I want to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. Thank you so much for studying chapter 3 together. Looking forward to studying chapter 4 and, of course, the rest of this book of Esther together.